five, four, three, two, one. Hey, uh, this is Charlotte Wells. I am the writer and director of After Sun. This is my first director's commentary, as this is my first film, so please bear with me. I did used to listen to these as um, a teenager, so while I would hope that no one would ever hear this, I suspect a few of you might. So um, here we go. I, uh, I came here today on the subway. I'm wearing these beaten up old Reeboks that I wore every day on set in the hope that they would conjure up some memories of production and listen to a few of the uh, on-set anthems to get me in the mood. The last of which was um, Somewhere by the Blaze, uh, which was released right at the end of the shoot when we did one pickup day in Istanbul. And I mentioned the Blaze because until the very last weeks of, um, even beyond Locking Picture, I think, Prelude by the Blaze was the opening music that played over the beginning of the film. Which on the page started in the rave, and I think in the very first cut of the film it did too. But here in a second we'll find our way to um to some DV footage. This opening was actually suggested during a feedback screening that we did in LA by Joy McMillan, who is Barry Jenkins' editor. And I was not sold on the idea, and Dale Romansky, our producer, flew to the edit room essentially to, uh, <laughs> to ensure that Blair and I tried this in person, and she came in the room and asked if we had, and we said no, we had not, and so we did. And, um, and it worked. It undeniably worked. It introduced you to the characters in a way that immediately established their rapport um, and their relationship and their charms, I think. And so we, we superimposed this image of adult Sophie very, very subtly there, beginning and end of the shot, to introduce that framing device that, that we came back to at the end. And this, this is how the script began, which I have sitting in front of me, just in case it ever proves itself of use. Greg and I spoke, Greg the cinematographer, Gregory Oak, um, one of the many cast of characters I will no doubt reference here. Um, Greg and I spoke at length about how to communicate as you alternate between Frankie and Celia, that these are both Sophie. Um, perspective is something that we discussed at, at great length as we developed our strategy to shoot this. And, um, and the cut that we end up coming to off of this, which is a match cut from Celia onto Frankie on the bus, was, um, was also Greg's suggestion. It's not how we were supposed to find our way onto that bus originally. There's a very elaborate shot, there it is, a very elaborate shot of a battery rolling down the bus that took us about a day to shoot, that was supposed to be our introduction to this environment as it, as it rolled down almost past slowly back up the bus by all of these cast of characters that, that were on this holiday, young people, old people, couples, friends, 
but ultimately that was the most elegant way to transition out of the rave and to make that connection as strong as possible between their faces. That Tormelinos joke is one of the most, um, <laughs> I don't know, I suppose, specifically personal and verbatim lines from my childhood memory. I remember a Tourette by the name of Belinda on a bus in Tormelinos, in fact, um, which is why that line still stems, because it was too good to give up. This transition um, from the, the hotel, or from the airport rather, to the hotel, I would have played this forever. The original cut of the film had credits over this scene and it, and it really played out for quite a bit of time and it was very hard to give that up. It's one of the last things that we did, but it felt important for the pace of the film just to arrive at the hotel a little bit quicker. But there's a line in the script that describes his hand there resting on her with effortless intimacy and that's an easy thing to write on the page but is something else to capture in person and in fact this was one of the very last things that we shot and Paul at some point has said that he doesn't think that they would have been able to shoot this earlier on that they needed to build that relationship over the course of the shoot for her to feel that comfortable just sleeping on his lap honestly she really fell asleep uh, <laughs> She's um she's good at acting at sleeping they both are but in that instance there there was very little acting involved. I'm going to throw Greg under the bus here because <laughs> he pointed out to me once that he saw on set that that light fixture hangs right above Callum's head as though it's a hat. And because of the intense um stress of production this was one of the last things that we shot. One evening, he he knew that it would take too much time for the team to move that light, and so he didn't say anything and realized only after the fact that he could, in fact, have just asked Paul to take a step to the right and would have avoided framing that, that lampshade like a hat. But uh, you don't think of these things under the, the pressure of production sometimes. This book that Frankie's reading here is a... Um, the idea is that it is this erotic fiction novel that that she leafs through and that you see later in the film, um, I'll point it out when it comes, she's actually stolen and put in her bag. But that was a moment that we ended up losing. Um, this here is, a, I think, one of my favourite shots and moments in the film. It's almost exactly as it was scripted, which is very satisfying when it works out that way that the conversation begins this way on the phone and then there's a cut yeah, the conversation post-lapse over the the image of Callum tying Sophie's shoes and talking her into bed yeah okay well I paid for it and um, it was confirmed by the travel agency Frankie covered in bruises as she always was because she was always jumping around getting into trouble on set. I've gotten a lot of grief from a family at home for the fact that Frankie wears a hearts shirt in this film. My um, The mum's side of my family are ardent Hibernian fans who, who are the rival Edinburgh team. 
but uh, I couldn't find a Hibernian shirt, and the truth is that color is a little bit more beautiful on screen, I think. A friend's sister had stacked all of her old football shirts at home, and their dad kindly sent it to me. I'm not sure what the longest shot is in the film, but I think it could very well be this one. And it was not our intention necessarily to shoot it exactly this way. Well, it was our intention to shoot this from here and to slowly zoom over her. This was Greg's idea um, in terms of how we were shooting this, because this is one of the first shifts, almost to adult Sophie's perspective in the film. We talked at length about how to differentiate the various points of view embedded within the story and um, how to create this this feeling of adult Sophie's overarching perspective. Um, a, a zoom is only used, I think, I suppose I'll be able to fact check this as we go, um, during this type of scene where Sophie remains in bed here and we find our way to Callum out on the balcony. This was one of the earliest images that I had in the film. This is actually the scene that Paul first sent me when he auditioned for the role of Callum. Um, I think it's always interesting to act, ask actors to perform these private moments to get a sense of, of who they are and how they interpret the character and how they move. And so it was always our intention at a certain point here to cut outside because one of the strongest images that was in the script was an image of Callum sitting on that balcony, that third floor balcony railing, smoking, unsupported. An image that felt very plain in many ways, but had this real tension because of how precariously his body was placed. And that was what we had in the cut. It also connected the two hotels because you could see as he sat on that balcony that the other hotel that they spend their time sneaking across to is, is right across the street. But in fact, this gorgeous long take that we had ended up feeling exactly right and allowed for this cut here, which is the first time that breaths are used so specifically in the film. We crescendo the sound of, of Frankie sleeping in the room, which was an idea I thought you, you think, sorry, it was an idea I think Jovan Ashder, our, our um, sound designer, thought was a little bit mad at first, but came to really understand and, and made work over the course of the sound design. But that moment felt important to encourage the audience to lean in and to communicate that they really did need to pay attention here, to look a little bit more closely at Callum. Sorry about the hotel. Life was just here and he said he had a great time. Before we did um before we went into production, we um we did a test shoot day and we shot this scene. We shot it by the beach, so not in, in situ as it was written in the script. And it was so perfect. It was the first time they had been on screen together. There was something so special captured within it. 
And as a result, it actually made shooting this scene again, as it was written at this location, unexpectedly difficult. As though maybe we had expanded the magic in that first moment and it took us a little while to figure out exactly how to shoot this how to set up their positions um but there's still such warmth and familiarity between them see if you let it rest on an object for a wee while it gets the lighting right that's quite clever. This was the first TV shot that we um that we did on set, and I remember the monitor was set up, and it was like we had this portal into into the nineties. It was a really special feeling. This is one of the few TV sequences in the film. This one specifically, Big Head, where um. This was just completely improvised. We were supposed to shoot with the bus, but the bus had broken down and I just grabbed a couple of t-shirts and Paul, Frankie and I roamed the streets and Paul shot some gorgeous footage of Frankie. There's one sequence with the palm tree that I, it's maybe one of the things I, I still wish were, somehow we could have found a place for in the film. In the scene of them running into the water, where I'm sure a few very eagle-eyed viewers will notice that Paul does not have a cast on, is because we actually shot this, we shot it right at the end, and it wasn't written into the script in a specific place. There were a sequence of shots right at the end of the script, which included, included that, that I just had a strong sense that we should get and that would find their place in, in the cut. And this is a fairly big departure from the script here because after they're by the pool and there's DV footage, they were supposed to find their, their way to the other hotel to meet the teens. And the scene where they throw the bread rolls at the stage during Macarena all took place on that first night. There's something about the pacing that never quite felt right, and we shot that transition between the hotels. It was our very first day of production, and we just didn't get it. We burned out of time, and it made moving between those two spaces just unexpectedly challenging. And um, in the end, we lifted that whole sequence, and there was a great loss there in the introduction of the teens in the gaming area while she was on the motorbike, because it worked. The whole arc with the teens just really worked. But ultimately, I, I really love that, that sequence. And I think that moment where the music, Oliver's score, comes in over the DV footage and you find them running out to the sea and then here we are with Callum and he can't sleep was a really important discovery in the edit. I think it sets up this dreamy memory-like tone and um, and it returns us to Callum in the bedroom because plotting out the development of Callum's arc in the film of gradually unveiling his struggle to the audience was the most difficult thing to calibrate. And it was important not to take our eye off it. And so I think coming back to that moment of him unable to sleep after we had seen him for such an extended time on the balcony is really just starting to add these moments together 
and to indicate that something isn't quite right. This was on our very first day of production that we shot this. Hence uh, losing the transition from hotel to hotel. It was in service of getting this scene right, which I think was worth it in the end. There had been um, <laughs> there had been so much work put into arriving to the first day of production, and I remember my producers Amy and Adela saying that they both expected that they would burst into tears when we finally got to that first day, that first shot on this gorgeous thirty-five millimeter film. But as it was, this scene was the very, very first scene that we shot in the film. Um, I'm not sure I would have chosen it with hindsight. I might have chosen something. Um, more specific to both characters, maybe to have both characters on screen at once. But it wasn't quite the um, the emotional moment that we all expected. But this was Frankie's very first time on camera, on, on set, during the actual shooting of the film. And I was often given the note during the edit to cut this moment shorter, but Blair McClendon, my editor, and I would have held it and we did, we held it as long as we possibly could. This is the type of shot that Greg and I referenced as SPOV on our shot list, Sophie point of view, Sophie's direct point of view. We tried to shoot these images as close as we could. They're the, the, the closest shots in the film and they're fragmented usually. With the idea that you're remembering parts of people, eyes, hands, with a view to trying to piece them back together after the fact. Michael is played by a young man called Brooklyn, and he's so wonderful. He was so wonderful the moment that Lucy shared his casting tape with me, and these two go on so well. I think it, my intention in the script was that Sophie had a little bit more obvious ambivalence toward Michael, but they enjoyed each other's company so much that that fell a little bit by the wayside once it came to capturing them both on screen. This is actually a restaurant at the Hotel Boulder. Our production designer did such an unbelievable job of building this into a gaming area. Had to source absolutely everything, and there is a freeze on the wall behind them that they that they built. I love the idea of this hotel almost trying to provide tourists with the the local environment that if they ventured out the hotel they could see in person, but to, to kind of recreate it in a way where people never really needed to leave and still had the sense that, that they were in this very um, historic place. Frankie had never played pool before she arrived in Turkey. It was a steep learning curve for her. <laughs> you don't mind, do you mate? No bother. Right, last one for now then, okay? Do you want a game of doubles? Yeah, sure. You've got a built-in rest there. <laughs> no danger. I'm right-handed and I'm playing with a kid, right? Paul's accent is so great. He spent so long working on it. The Edinburgh accent using Shirley Manson from Garbage as a, as a template. Well done. 
This was actually a scene that Greg and I had set up a really specific way that just didn't work. That wide shot that the scene opens with, I think we'd intended to play more out on, and it just didn't quite feel right, and was one of the moments that we took our time and found that shot of of the three boys where Harry's in the foreground there just out of focus, and then you see Spike and Paul speaking as, as though they're peers and, until they're not. And Paul talks about that moment that, that Spike says fuck and he turns because now that the parental instinct kicks in and I love this little look between Spike and Frankie here kind of building that camaraderie at the beginning of her feeling a part of it with the teens. That's uh, that's Frankie's father and little brother who has a an absurdly <clears throat> uncanny talent for throwing a tantrum at, on command. Go again. No, you're just pushing. Look, you have to twice. Like These scenes here were one of the most challenging days on set. We had spent a lot of the morning shooting details of the sky and the hotel and the room and the environment, which took a lot more care and preparation than we ever expected. Something... <laughs> to be remembered for future films. And we had two takes of this, and somehow, even though it's shot not quite like anything else in the film, in the way that it pans back and forth between the two of them, it worked so well. It worked so well. Thin part lines up to where the fingers connect. Okay? And you pull as hard as you can. This is something I remember family members doing with me as a kid. Frankie's so good here. And then we shot this right afterward, and I wasn't happy with how we'd shot it. And though we almost never made a day, I really wanted the time to come back. I was devastated at lunchtime on this day because I just wanted to try a few different things, including having him finish the dialogue from the conversation um, with with the, the wrist and the self-defense. But uh, we, we were evacuated from the entire location after, after two final takes because of wildfires in the area. But I'm glad we made it back in for, um, for what we did manage to get, even though we had to hustle through the rest of the day. This sequence here was actually five discrete scenes that just never quite brought enough individually. Um, this this scene specifically had a lot more import in the script than it ended up being just by virtue of many aspects of, of production and, um, and set, but it was really Blair who found this movement using music and using this dialogue to bind together this moment. And I think this combined with the moment earlier where we go from the DV to them running into the sea really starts to create this feeling of memory and takes us a step away from portraying this holiday timeline as strictly linear. It was a really essential discovery and people were such fans of it. During feedback, Blair began to get quite frustrated. He always threatened that he would cut it from the film if one more person mentioned it. 
because it was so striking and some of the other work that he had done had gone with much less notice. And that sky, sky pattern bikini that she's wearing. So much detail went into this from every department. Frank Gallagher was our costume designer. That moment there with the paraglider is one that I always considered as being almost out of time. So that paraglider could be now, he could be then. Entertainment. And... So the DV, while we shot on DV, we actually went back and re-recorded the very, very end. In Ari in London, we re-recorded using our 35mm camera so that there would be a unified aesthetic across the film. So you have this 35mm on top of mini DV. But because we shot it playing back on a TV, it took on this really difficult blue hue that was almost impossible to grade out. I still see it. It was the only scene that we couldn't really grade it out of in that, that last one in the mirror. This was a night where we had to rep Frankie before we had shot Paul's single and I was forced to sit across from him and perform the scene. Because I had my eye on his performance too, would frequently forget to read my lines. I was a terrible, terrible scene partner was also suddenly very much in awe of sitting, attempting to give some kind of passable reading of the lines in front of Paul. It was fairly absurd. I think it was the last time I attempted to do that myself. But it really is credit to him. It was such a hard thing to ask of him to, to remove his scene partner so often because we would run out of time and we'd have to shoot her scenes first. So this was originally supposed to take place on that first night, as I said, when we'd already met these teens at the, um, at the arcade. Because this, of course, is, is the girl that she ends up having conversation with at the end of the film, Laura, played by Ruby Thompson. And Ethan, who's uh, who's dancing with her there, <laughs> brought such immense energy to this uh, <laughs> to this scene. Our amazing two reps, Sally Mesham, who played Belinda, who's up there, who had a bigger role in the script, and who spent much time with us in Turkey, and unfortunately, for many, many different reasons. Um, to do with the pacing of the film, those those some of those scenes aren't in the final cut. It's always hard to lose things like that. And this was part of the sequence from from earlier that we ended up splitting across the film in an early draft of the script. That shot had followed the the high energy of the Macarena exit, and and it felt right. Frankie didn't know that they were going to throw the bread rolls on the first take. It was a lot of fun. This is a sequence that was in the um, major part of the audition process for both characters, and Frankie knew this like the back of her hand. She still does. I think she always will. But it was always an important moment in the script, and I had this idea of a two-shot where you saw her lying on the bed and you saw him in the bathroom. 
that felt so important, we chose this location for it. It was the only hotel room we ever found where there was enough room to, and the and the room layout was appropriate to get the shot. And in the end, she's sitting in this chair because, again, it just is what felt right. I remember with um, with these shots of, of Callum alone as he's taking off the cast and he, he stabs his arm here accidentally, although somewhat recklessly because he shouldn't be doing what he's doing in the way that he is. The blood isn't quite as readable as I imagined it being. Ah, but I always find that moment hard to watch. And it was another moment where we were shooting Callum here, and I think we were a little bit further away because that was our strategy for shooting Callum alone, always to be as far away as we could be. But again, it just didn't feel right. And so the rules that we had were not rules. They were guidelines, strategies of how to shoot. And if something didn't feel right, plan B was always to do what did. And in this case, we moved a little bit closer. Frankie's so great in this scene. Blair cut the scene quite early on and it really didn't change. It's one of those scenes that just remained. As it was during the course of the cut because it just worked. And that bathroom is a room within a room. I mean, the whole setup here in the bedroom is. We tried to make it the coziest space on set and Blair built that bathroom. We, we chose the tiles... There was no bath, there was a shower only. Uh, like a remarkable amount of work went into building that set. Paul looks like a Greek statue here. This was never intended to be <clears throat> played out underwater. It was incredibly difficult to shoot on the water. We had a fleet of boats. There were a few quite elaborate under underwater sequences, including the dive itself. And it's interesting how things don't always play as you expect them to. And there were versions of the film that didn't arrive at that moment, and yet it was always one of the strongest moments in the script for me, seeing Callum reach and reach for this thing that just remains perpetually beyond his grasp. There were versions where he came above water, and in the end we discovered this cut that just holds on the water itself. Again, it feels a little bit out of time to me, as though it could be now. I made purple put that wet wetsuit on so many times and we really did make it very damp so it was almost impossible to pull on. He was quite authentically out of breath. Frankie has such an amazing instinct for timing. For somebody who's never performed before, she really, really knows how to take her time. Go up. The mask. I know it was expensive.
This, um... This was also a pickup day. You'll notice <laughs> that the sky alternates between being very bright blue and extremely overcast, which was a result of the smoke from the wildfires. That's okay, but we just ran out of time and we had it only in a wide shot and it felt really important to come back and and get this moment. Can you run up and grab the camera? It's in the bag. Owner who plays the dive instructor here, he was in fact a dive instructor. He um, had no previous acting experience. He was a huge help, bearing in mind that we did shoot the underwater sequences, the dives. We shot them with a double because Frankie was unable to dive. In Turkey, which has one of the highest age limits for diving in the world, 14, he was amazing, an amazing sport. And um, I sat down with him before we got to set and we talked a little bit about his past and I rewrote this scene um, to, to accommodate him somewhat. But it's interesting that character was first written as English and I think it's really nice in the end that he's Turkish. Uh, it was always a scene about Callum kind of spending time with a peer. It's really the only time in the film you, you see him interact with a peer in this way. This is a note that Greg had, our cinematographer, during the script stage is, is missing a moment like this between between Callum and somebody his own age. We're going to have a baby soon. Yeah, a few years ago, I thought I would be at least 40 before all that, but... Two people at a similar similar point in life with very different experiences. Surprised I made it to 30. Again, this is a moment where we use the zoom being somewhat in, in like a very subtle but building sense of adult Sophie maybe imagining or piecing moments back together, wondering what he was doing beyond her eye. My name is Sophie Lerchman Patterson, reporting live from... I don't know the name of this book. Um, but basically, I have trust my and the most amazing thing in my whole. I remember we shot this before we did the dive on the underwater dive sequences, and Greg and I listened um, using the headphones as Frankie did this because we couldn't be with her. She was up on the top deck of the boat, and it was so exciting. And we knew she was just doing such a great job. It was so charming, and it felt so real, even though most of this is um, is quite specifically scripted. And uh, I remember Greg turning to me saying, I don't know that we need the underwater sequences. I think this might sell it sufficiently just how excited she is here. Um, because that was what was essential is that, that this was a really great day and she'd had this amazing experience and that Callum had managed to create that for her. And in the end, it was, I think Greg had the hardest time letting go of us not using the underwater footage. But the truth is, I think he was right in that very first moment. His instinct was right that we just didn't need it. <laughs> but, yeah, bye-bye, 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 bye-bye. And then here we find our way back to the rave. Beyond Callum's, the unveiling of Callum's private struggle, the rave was one of the most difficult sequences to 
pace out correctly over the film and for a long time there was a rave a little bit earlier when Callum couldn't sleep between him being able to sleep and that phone box sequence but um, we came back to this which I think was maybe in our very very first cut where um, where this is our first reintroduction to the rave and this is the first time we see Callum Beyond that <clears throat> shot of um, beyond that shot of Callum and Sophie in the bathroom, the paragliders were one of the the main reasons that that we chose this small town Oludenis in Turkey to to shoot. And I just thought they added so much atmosphere, the sense of people, something just endlessly descending from the sky. It felt both oppressive in some ways and very peaceful and freeing in others. We'll go somewhere else next time. They're both so wonderful in this. This was also one of the hardest scenes to fight for because in many ways it was easy to remove. It's not it was easy to say that of many scenes, in fact, that nothing was strictly necessary and yet everything was building and building and building and what made this scene impossible to remove was just how fun it is and how warm they are with each other and Callum's laugh about her teacher and her embarrassment. I think it's one of my favorite performance moments in the film that's coming up in a second from Frankie. She slowly sits up and ultimately that warmth between them here made this scene really, really essential because if I could go back and change anything in the script, it would be to add more moments like this. Who's your new teacher? And Greg was always on me about that. Hi, the one from Glasgow. This is also based on personal experience. I will never forget a moment of just unabashed flirting on my dad's part with one of my teachers. Oh. She's pretty. <laughs> She's the pretty one from Glasgow. She's stuck in my head. <laughs> oh my God, Dad, stop. Okay. Stop. <laughs> is she supposed to be good? That t-shirt was also mine as a kid. It's one of a few things in the film that I had found by rooting through my mum's attic that uh, just added nice period authenticity to the film. It wasn't about Frankie being me, Sophie being me. She really is a fictional character. Steps away, but... Um, but some details like that added a lot, I think, to the period. That was a really hard moment, that moment of Callum, the near miss with the with the bus to get right within the cut. It was supposed to come halfway through this scene, so the idea was that you'd see these two on the um on the bikes and you would see one of them kind of crash on screen and that, that would match cut with somehow Callum missing that that coach in the road, but I think for that to work, somehow they would have had to happen exactly the same time. And of course, without a split screen or something, that's impossible. And so it never quite felt right cutting into it. It took the momentum and energy out of this scene. And so we ended up um, placing it at the, at the beginning. What's your name, Something. And again, the look on these kids' faces, it's... Uh, they were both such fun to have around in the same place. 
I think this is one of my favorite musical cues in the film, um, in terms of soundtrack. Catatonia. This is a moment in the edit where it was always in the background of this scene a lot louder. And for whatever reason, the tale had continued over across this gorgeous slow pan over the vista from their hotel room. And it was a really an accidental overlay here and I hit play and I heard it. And it was just lined up at exactly that point where the song shifts in its tone and the lyrics suddenly seemed utterly perfect. Yeah, it's just one of those very fortunate things. I really do love this moment. This is more very elegant Blair McClendon cutting across here. Paragliders fading in and out, allowing time to pass. This is a sequence in the film that Greg had a really clear vision of how to shoot that was executed perfectly. You okay through there? The mirror upside I down. I guess. I feel a bit down or something. And this was a scene that Frankie had a bit of trouble with in, in terms of just feeling a little bit uncomfortable by the intention here, by the sadness being expressed and I asked her during the rehearsal period to try and put this feeling into her own words and I rewrote the script a little bit here and allowed her to find her own way through it. I think in terms of being a director and, and the moments I feel most proud of over the course of it, I, I think helping Frankie through these moments are, are some of the most memorable. And she never knew that he spitted there, not once. We did this about six times. Maybe four, four to six times, and we always kept from Frankie what Callum was experiencing in this moment, and it was hard. This is really to Paul's credit, because they would walk out that room together, and they would mess around for a few minutes until we reset, because we'd have to dry the toothpaste on this mirror, and then bring up the lights for this gag, or night becomes morning. And then he'd have to come back in and reset, and re-perform that, that scene with the same intensity. This is one of my favorite shots in the film, I think. We had a lot more of it. It used to come a little bit earlier. But when we cut the rave from after Callum being unable to sleep, we, we had to lose that scene. I'm glad we found a place for it there. This was one of the most challenging days on set. There was a scene here at a postcard stand where Sophie talks about getting her ears pierced and... Callum responds by saying that if someone were to attack her, they would rip the earrings straight from her ears. And it was a scene I really loved, and it just wasn't quite working. I'm not sure why. Sometimes things don't come together exactly as you imagine them to, 
and what's left of it is is that a hair braiding moment yeah actually we come up to the carpet shop greg has this carpet now i gave it to him as a wrap present which sometimes i regret but uh felt like it would be too much to have myself and um i remember he specifically was drawn to that turquoise color in it when we first went to scout that location and the owner of the shop laid out all the carpets, stacked them up high for us to look at. This actor here really did have a, um, a carpet shop. It was actually in the town that we were staying in, where the bigger of the, the two hotels are. And he had just spent 30 years, I think, living in Aberdeen. And he spoke English with a a almost Scottish accent. It was one of those kind of moments where different worlds come together. That look Frankie gives him there is so good. For whatever reason, Greg just does not like this shot, and Blair and I always told him that he shouldn't shoot things that he doesn't want to be in the film because we both absolutely adored it. You're gonna play cool? No, no, come on. Why don't you go introduce yourself to those girls over there? Shh. You can't come play pool with this was the hardest scene for a long, long time to edit. I'm not sure why. Something about these shots, something about the way we had chosen to go chosen to go about covering the scene, something about it was just exceptionally challenging. The pacing. And again, Blair really found this way to bridge these scenes together by freeing himself by from sorry freeing himself from the strict linearity of of the script and just finding a different path through it's so interesting how sometimes the greatest problems become some of the most elegant passages in in the film This is one of these moments with Cal Mamone that we had a vision of how to shoot and we got to set and it didn't feel right and then Greg set this up where you first see just the shadow on the wall. Then we have Callum come slightly into frame. You see him through that mirror. I mean, everything in that room was placed, the mirror, the texture on the wall. There really was a room within a room. Whoa, you don't want to see that. I, corrupting the youth. These guys were such fun to have on set and Frankie really did have a wonderful relationship with them. I love the score here. Oliver would send us these lettered pieces of music and Blair would lay them in. And this was one where Blair had laid over, I think, three different pieces from Oliver and then sent it back and Oliver refined it. And this flutter, I remember when I, I spent a couple of days with Oliver in his studio up in Glasgow and he mentioned this extra little flutter that continues once the music stops here, just as Callum lies down on the carpet. So what was our problem section really did become one of my favourite sequences in the film. I think Blair's too. Gross. I've been snaking for a fucking age. What? What the fuck is snaking? Snaking? Wow, what do you call it? That. That's tonguing. No. That's this nipping. scene was all about 
the strange cultural transference that happens not among people from other countries when you go abroad as a Brit, but among people from maybe 100 or 200 miles down the street from where you are. I'm sharing the different words for making it. Drinking in LA, this is another of my favorite music moments in the film and I was in the mix room with Jovan at one o'clock in the morning. We worked such long hours to get this right leading up to Critics Week at Cannes and he showed me at one o'clock in the morning this effect, this filter where the song carries over and has this underwater filter applied to it and it was just one of those moments that is so exciting and feels so right and you're kind of elevating from the thrill of what you've heard and seen. And so we ended up there for another couple of hours to get there, right? So it eventually fades out and Oliver's music comes in. And now they rise above water and the song's no longer playing. It's this sobering moment where suddenly she feels a little bit out of her depth. These were the shots that we took such great care shooting and uh, made our afternoon very difficult for herself during the uh, self-defense and, and face cleansing scene. And this was actually a scene that Greg and I had no plan for. We had spent months and months shortlisting this as we geared up to get to Turkey, but we spent so long having these extensive conversations that we never made it to the end. And so we would set up the night before in the morning of, and we would plan our days. We just hadn't quite figured out how to do this, and yet it's one of the scenes that just feels so effortless in the film. Frankie's so good. And it's just nice to have a moment with Sophie. Adela, our producer, took those curtains home. I think they hang up in her house now. This cut here, I think, is one of Blair's proudest cuts in the film on the movement. So this scene is in the script and it was in the script with a vision of an almost L-shaped room which would never have been realistic where you see them moving behind the TV that there wasn't a mirror written into the script and it was clear that was never going to work. In the room that we had chosen, which we'd chosen for many other reasons, and so we used this mirror, and what I had not accounted for in writing the script is that we would have this old CRO TV and that it would have a concave screen, convex rather, sorry, a convex screen, and that we would have these amazing reflections in it. And so this is something that the basis of the idea was laid out on the page that was just so vastly elevated due to the collaboration with Greg, with Ballur, whose name <laughs> is on that How to Meditate book there. 
where at certain points you see Frankie, you see the the LCD screen of the camera, you see Callum on the TV, you see his reflection on the edge of the TV. There are just so many images on this screen and in this frame. It's one of those things that just worked so well. And there's a significant visual effects moment here because when she turned the camera around to herself there, the whole crew is behind her. But this is the very first take, and it was just the best take. They were all great, but this one was really special. And so we had to remove the uh, the crew. You can see those dead pixels from the camera on the screen. The result of having a 30-year-old camera as one of your principal <laughs> cameras in the film. Look, it's not even on you anymore, it's on me. <laughs> Uh, okay, it's not recording. I'll just record it in my little main This is something that Frankie did during the rehearsal period, the first two weeks that we had together. Before we started shooting, I gave her the camera to mess around with one day, but the battery was dead. So she said, that's fine, I'll just record it in my little mind camera. And she zoomed in like that, and it was clearly a better line than I ever could have dreamed up. Even the instinct to place the camera right there, I mean, maybe luck, but just the fact that we still see it in the screen, on the screen. She was so angry, she grabbed me by the ear, and made my dad drive me. But that line really is to Frankie's credit, it's so special. That's also a Frankie line. She just doesn't like sitting in these feelings of things being sad, and it really brought a dimension to the character I hadn't expected that works so, so well. The gifts the actors give you. Good choice. Thank you. This, um, this sequence was written in the script after a exercise that Greg and I had done for Sundance during the lapse, and we'd cut together a 15-minute almost version of the film using footage from other films. And in it there was a sequence that I had set to Tender by Blur, and it was one of the songs that ended up being written into the script. There were only a couple because I assumed I'd have to make most of those decisions in post. But it was a scene that just really felt like it captured a feeling through that exercise, and I ended up cutting some of it, as I said, writing some of it really into the script. So this was a shot, <laughs> as I shamelessly divulge my references now, from Tomboy by Celine Siamo, as was the, the beer moment. This was actually an idea Greg had had of shooting this as a reflection as though a memory, a feeling, remembering being held in that way, and seeing it. And then there was a scene from Alice in the Cities where he kind of reads her a story, almost tells her a story as she as she goes to sleep. 
never felt like I really did belong there. And this was another moment on set where our shooting strategy just didn't feel as though it worked. Until we found this, this moment, this position that they both felt very comfortable in and are both so wonderful here. You can live wherever you want to live. And again, our intention all the way through to the color grade was to make this room feel as cozy and warm and intimate as possible in the safest space. And originally, the the idea of this shot is that it panned over to the window, and out the window we saw Callum leave for a night. And um, instead, we cut into the rave here and ended up chopping and screwing tender a little bit. Or this rave sequence was always approximately here. It was part of this sequence in in the um, in the script, but not as direct a cut. And I think Blair and I just felt like there was really something special there, but cutting from a moment that felt so secure into this. There you see Callum perhaps being given something in this rave space. An adult Sophie looking away for the first time. And then this is a shot from um, Hotel Monterey by Chantal Ackerman. That, um, that was part of that final sequence that we had built. And so we ended up cutting the idea of Callum leaving Again, it was always about pursuing feeling, and that just felt right. But this was a, a hard sequence to fine-tune because the cuts really were marginal, and, and the smallest cuts, and this was true as we started sharing the film with people, the slightest cuts had the biggest impact on audiences. It really, there was a lot of... Um, very, there were a lot of very nuanced conversations that took place in, in finding the balance between all of these elements. And sometimes distilling things into a single image or two, just like that moment of Frankie looking at his reflection and eating Cocoa Pops. That was a much longer scene that just didn't feel required. And this was a day, in fact, overall that... that Again, it was quite difficult to get right because it's a moment in the holiday where right. things okay. have hit a bit of a lull, as they do, where an amount of tedium sets in. The repetition of the holiday starts to wear, and yet you know you don't have too much time left. And so quite a bit was cut from this section of the film, actually, I would say. This water polo scene culminated in the ball hitting Frankie's face and her getting a nosebleed and, and Callum panicking and a fellow holiday guard coming to comfort her. But again, it just it felt a little bit too 
dramatic in some ways, I think, although it was very sad to lose that woman's performance because she's somebody, Sandra, that we had met in Turkey and had really um, coaxed onto screen. Up, 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 up. We're going swimming. Hands up. Quick, quick, quick. This shot was inspired by Wolfgang Till Tillman's um, photograph. The overhead shot of the water. So this is just a day where they're just constantly missing each other. As one tries, the other isn't really in the mood to, to receive the effort and, and vice versa. I remember this, we shot all of this this hotel in the first two weeks. It's very much thrown in the deep end as a director on my first feature because there were so many people to manage. But um, this was the first moment I remember having time to really try different things and, and really work with the actors. And again, when you take time, you sacrifice it elsewhere. And we had a significant challenge matching the lighting between the singer and the family and the dancing couple and these two having dinner. This is actually really much more taking place during magic hour and just fantastically graded by Kath Raish. You excited for tomorrow? Yeah. This is a moment where just almost they they come together before we get into karaoke. This was a tough transition here that we figured out. Unfortunately, we missed those two singing Angels by Robbie Williams as a result, but it was a more elegant way to get into this space. Oh, you didn't sign us up. Of course I did. This was another place where our shooting strategy did go to plan of being very specific about shooting this behind them and coming coming around for the second half of the scene. And so the idea is that Frankie, or Sophie rather, has chosen one of Callum's songs. She's chosen R.E.M. and Frankie really, really, truly despises this track. And so because this was at the hotel that we were staying at, I'd spent two weeks standing on that stage trying to coax this song out of Frankie during rehearsal, which Paul graciously reminded me recently involved me standing there and singing at the top of my lungs, thankfully with no microphone, the song myself. And eventually, one day, she stood there and kind of mouthed audibly her way through the song, and that was all I needed her to do. Because in doing that, I knew that when it counted, she would stand up and do it. And she did it. It's amazing. We had one and a half takes before she was pulled from set because her time was up. And she takes us on this huge journey over the course of the song. And we cut to Callum here, and that was under many, many people's requests and advice. And I think it was the right thing to do, but my instincts were never to cut to him at all. Though in some ways we needed to, to get between takes. Oh, 
but she's so great here. And, and for me, the scene really represented the crossing from childhood to adolescence, where a self-consciousness emerges, something that was supposed to be so free and fun. And once you have that self-consciousness, you can't really ever go back, no matter how much you want to. I heard that Frankie went to a screening in her hometown and was caught in the, the cinema foyer afterwards screaming this song. So it obviously didn't traumatize her too much. And finding the music actually that, that plays under this was really difficult because for the longest time in the cut we didn't have anything. And yet there had to be something because here another woman comes to sing karaoke and it was hard to find something that felt quite right that either worked toward the scene or against it. In the end, we went with uh, the tide is high, just to mix up the periods a little bit. Offering to pay for something when I know you don't have the money. But they're so wonderful in this 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 scene. And this smile here that, that Paul gives as he tries to turn it around is just... We chose the take for this. Okay, come on. Let's call it an early night. Pressure tomorrow, okay? No, I'm staying down here for a bit. See upstairs, then? Sophie. You're not too long. One of the best musical transitions in the film there. Blair placed that song here with really no affinity for um, British music from the 1990s, and yet he absolutely nailed it. This was supposedly apple juice in these shot glasses, though sometimes I'm not so sure. It was a lot of fun to shoot this. These guys all gone so well. In another moment where we had absolutely no time and Frankie just did it so well. Some days, it, Greg and I are kind of alternated between how hard a time we gave ourselves for not executing everything perfectly. We're always there to pick each other up and this was one night that Greg felt really down about us not having gotten everything we wanted and I saw in Frankie there that we had what we needed. even though we didn't have her in this wide, which ideally we would have done. And that shirt there, that purple shirt, is this vintage Christian Dior shirt that I managed to wrangle from our costume designer at the end of the shoot. Never Ever by All Saints was another track that was in the, uh, in the script. I mean, there is really wall-to-wall -wall music um, over this passage of the film, which worried us at a certain point, but I think ultimately felt right. Okay. Hanging up. Yeah. Oh, is it disgusting? Got it. I'm going tomorrow anyway, so you are staying for a couple more days, right? Yeah. Now you can get whatever you want. Thanks. Okay. See ya.
What do you want? Can I get a fountain lemon, please, in my office? She's so good. Again, we here we have our kind of slowly moving camera and seeing Callum reflected rather than in person. One thing I really loved about the DV was its ability to be played back within the scenes. And so you have this scene, which we saw earlier, of um, of uh, Frankie recording recording him. And in fact, originally when he couldn't sleep. It was that same clip that he was watching back, and it, it gives him this feeling of solace. We ended up changing the audio of um, of the clip because it better served that scene. But I love this idea that this this one this one playback would give him comfort in one moment, and and wouldn't provide him with the same solace that he was looking for later in the film when he's having a harder time. This was a different hotel that we shot at, actually. During the scout, Greg and I had discovered this, um... Fuck, what you do that for? Sorry. This pool with a skylight that, that felt like Sorry. it was going to serve the scene so much better than it had been written, which was the idea that they'd be kissing in this pool that was surrounded by shrubbery and the kids would be hidden in the green. Why are you coming out with us? What are you doing? These dogs, they came out of nowhere and very kindly participated in the scene and chased Paul down the street. These are the little things so easy to take, in for grant, take for granted in a script that she throws that cigarette away, but it was COVID and she couldn't be smoking that cigarette, so there was this incredibly elaborate setup where we had to light it and shoot quickly and then she'd throw it, he'd pick it up. I love that the colour of the taxi matches the armband there. We made sure to grade it so they were exactly the same. Yeah, it's quite in the day. We lost I'm a lot of this scene. There's more in the script, and they're both so, so, so good. I still can't die. Again, making so many cuts in service of the, so, uh, the overall pace of the film. The bigger picture. Do you like me? Yeah. And finding this location was, was such a gift. Um, because Greg conceived this, this way of shooting where we just see her eye. It's exactly as I would have wanted to shoot it. And we'd find our way to the pool and then to the skylight and we'd see these other kids looking in from above. And the idea is that they're playing this game where they kind of take turns sitting in the pool. Um, and unfortunately we didn't have time to get this wide shot of, of the transition where you see those two leave and another two come in. But ultimately it felt right to, to cut there. And we lost the back half of the scene, which is a very charming performance moment between them both. Unfortunately, to get here, where um, Sophia's locked out. Moments like this were discoveries for Frankie when she finally saw the film because of course we only shot one side of it on set.
an idea here being that she's just had this very awkward experience with this boy that she had felt, you know, somewhat ambivalent about, and then she sees this really passionate moment between these two boys later on. This we shot at three or four o'clock in the morning. And I remember as we we arrived there and because there was a drop off we couldn't see, we knew we needed some white water and we were so relieved when we saw those little waves rolling into shore because otherwise there would have been nothing for the light to hit. We shot it, or, or rather Greg lit it, as though it's almost a stage of sorts. And we did it different ways. We, we tried it where he clumsily takes off his clothes and goes into the water in just his boxers and we, and we did it fully clothed. And I knew we needed it just one different way and it's one of those moments on set where everybody wants to kill you because it's four o'clock in the morning and everybody wants to get home. And we actually had a scout at Istanbul which left the next day a few hours later. But I asked that we do it one more time so that we could shoot Paul going in fully clothed, which by the time we'd done it a couple of times I knew was the right instinct. And so that we could hold as long as possible here. So you see him swim away, away, away. And there were versions of the cut where we saw him swim back. It was a really big discussion about whether he we'd see him swim back or not, and ultimately you don't. Miss. And that was somewhat inspired by, there was always a scene where he kind of drunkenly swam out to sea, but when we, when we went on that scout to, um, to this town, Greg and I had looked back up, just the two of us, because we'd been on the scout with our producers, Amy and Adela, and, um, we were there, the two of us, and, and Greg refused to leave without getting in the water at least once, and so he waded into the water one night. We had a 60 mil camera with us, and we're messing around about town, and he went in, and he just disappeared, and I was sitting there for five minutes imagining the call I'd have to make to his parents, and uh, it was just such a striking image, seeing him disappear into the water like that. I ended up rewriting the scene to take place at night. Oh, the shadow of the fan there. And this is a moment that echoes the beginning of the film, which is really where Greg just had such an eye on how we were shooting across the whole film, which is such a difference between shorts and features because of the length and the opportunity to circle back to things, especially in a film that has so much repetition by design. And there was a musical track here that was accidentally muted during the mix, which reminded me that my original intention here had been that breaths completely take over the soundscape. And so when we did ADR, we, we picked up many sounds like this, which isn't an easy thing to do. And Jovan really contributed so much to the soundscape of the raves. Sound of a siren bleeding over. 
Actually, if you listen closely during the DV on the, the boat rooftop deck, you can hear city sounds there as well. On the top deck of the boat. And here we have a painstakingly recreated New York apartment in Istanbul. I found this, um... Are you okay? This apartment in Galata, I think, that had these exposed brick walls and production designer put together this air conditioner. It was actually, this shot was almost inspired by this Adrian Tomine artwork. It was a New Yorker cover um, where you have the windows and the air conditioner at night. It was a reference image that I kept coming back to to create this, this New York apartment bedroom. That's Sarah, who's our on-set photographer, who took gorgeous pictures, which um, form the basis of our posters, who amazingly stepped into that role. This, I think, is Blair's favourite shot in the film. We would have played this for much longer, and it was... Again, there were so many things in this film that could have stayed or could have go gone. But if you remove everything, you don't have anything. Um... So we were really adamant about keeping certain things, and we both saw a lot of beauty in this um, this completely abstracted image where the camera's been put down on on the bed sheet, and you just have this really fascinating grain from the the mini DV, this pink hue, and all of these dead pixels like stars, and this gorgeous piece of score. Which almost feels like an echo of the siren that we hear in the in the apartment. Greg and I spoke a lot about the direction that we would move in, left to right, right to left. This is the opposite direction that we move in when we're on the bus at the beginning of the film. It's funny, our instincts were often opposite. We'd often imagine opposite directions for um for, for things that had lateral movement. There are many ways in which our instincts are very different, but I think our overlapping taste and ambition to serve character and story is very much the same, which is why it's such a great collaboration. Paul hated those glasses. He thought they looked terrible. <laughs> I never told him that they belonged to my dad. Frankie's so good here. This the scene also went on. I mean, truly, had everything that we we had written been in the film, it would have been three hours long. I think the first cut was two forty. Producers asked us never to deliver a cut over two hours ever again. And it was really important to me that the tension of the night before not be resolved immediately here, that she really isn't too bothered and that it takes them time to, to work up uh, to the point where they're able to discuss it. This scene was originally written to be at a, a petrol station, a gas station, which was a location that Greg and I discovered on the, on the scout which was much, much further away from where we were shooting, but we, we kept passing this rest stop. It was near a cold spring that we'd shot a scene at that sadly is not in the film anymore because it was gorgeous, but 
was ultimately redundant. It came after this scene and before the mud baths, and we just didn't need both. But the scene was inspired also by Alice in the Cities, where you see them exercising together. And we didn't have them mic'd. I imagined this always being environmental sound, but then they began to talk and we panicked and our sound team were, were panicking and I agreed to let them um, mic them up and thank goodness I did because uh, the dialogue here is so lovely and it really is entirely the, the actors here. I know. Exactly. And now copy this. I remember being so excited on set here. And after this we shot um we shot them on the on the bus, the scene that we've just seen and it was one of those days where things had gone really well and there weren't too many of those days where we really felt like we had we had got it. But uh, but Greg and I held ourselves to impossibly high standards on, on in the course of this film, and luckily other people, including including producers, seemed confident that we were going somewhere, and that we had what we needed. And here we're at the mud bath, which I think we ended up having half an hour to shoot six pages of dialogue. Greg and I cut this in Turkey and sent it to Blair and told him there was no other way to cut the scene. And I think he tried and then discovered that there was in fact not. And so this was really cut the second that we got the footage back because we just needed to know if we had it. And we did. And Frankie adds so much here. She really did not want to get in that mud bath. She found the whole thing to be utterly horrifying. Well, I mean, it was kind of suicide. I wasn't for sure there was a snake. Nobody ever found it. She actually spiked the lens there um, after saying the word suicide. That felt so wildly dramatic. We, we visual effects it out. We had no other choice because we had no other takes. But Frankie's instinct here to, to reach down and place the mud on top of Paul... It's really, um, that is a Frankie Corio instinct as an actor. That is her aversion to letting things be sad for too long, and it's just one of the most special moments in the film. Sorry I passed out in your bed. Bye. Remember Greg having a lot of notes here in the script um, about just making sure that we really felt like Callum had a hard time letting himself off the hook for having done that the night before because it was important to me that Sophie really wasn't it wasn't such a big deal to her you know it's a moment it was memorable she she remembers it later on is obviously thinking back to it and what it may have meant that she missed at the time but um it wasn't a big deal in the moment and I think it's something that Callum has a much harder time forgiving himself for than than Sophie does I'm sorry okay Thank you. <laughs> I love this line she says here. Uh, I did. No, you don't. The big, now you the do. big back. I see your back. How about it? Yep. Right, I need to get a big clump for this big Thank back. You. That's just letting the scene run and seeing what the actors oh. do. 
That was so lovely. Careful my shoulder. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> Sorry. And then because time was so compressed, what they did is they sat there for a moment and then they got up and they walked across to the shower where I will never forget our boom operator becoming coming one step from stepping into that massive hole. Yeah. This boy, Michael, met him on the motorbike game. And we did this dialogue a couple of times on a boat after shooting this. I wanted to make sure we had something to work with and imagined we'd maybe go back and do it in ADR because we obviously couldn't mic them up when they were on this platform that we shot this on. Yeah. But uh, the it's just so great. We never needed to re-record it at well, all. Okay, right? Peck on the cheek. I love this shot here. You could never choreograph something well, exactly. like this. A gift. So when we scouted and we came to this mud bath, because we couldn't get access you know, to the one that I imagined, the, uh, the real Cleopatra one, and um, Greg, this was Greg's idea. He suggested that, that we could shoot this way if we placed a float out. And in fact, that float was intended to be at least twice as big, but a boat had hit it and, uh, and destroyed half of it. Our production designer was devastated. But it's just big enough. All it needed to be was big enough for them to sit on it. And this was really a moment that Paul, who's so interested in every facet of production and how we're shooting, really put his trust in us because I, he had absolutely imagined the scene being shot much closer and is a really big scene, an important scene, a scene that he was looking forward to. And I remember him double-taking when I told him we were going to place them, you know, 50 meters away from camera. But he trusted us, and, and I'm really happy with, uh, with how that scene came out. I also love that moment there where that yellow t-shirt is against the blue sky. The colors are so gorgeous. In the shot here, um, where Callum is looking down and his hand is over his eye while they're singing was inspired by the Criterion Collection cover of Beau Travail. Grégoire Collin is uh, obscured. We shot this after the, um, the water days and Frank was absolutely exhausted. There's our Beau Travail shot. And this crossfade, which is quite polarizing in the edit, but it's something I'd stumbled across. Not between Blair and I, I think we always felt strongly that it worked, but in, in feedback, not everybody was sold on that. And this is a shot that really so much credit goes to Greg, because I always knew that this shot would be from behind, that it would zoom gradually out. But it was written that he'd be facing the window and that he would be silhouetted against the dusk light. But Greg argued, rightly so, that he shouldn't have that space in front of him, that he should be boxed in, that he should be facing a wall because that's how he perceives his future. And so, um, and that's how we shot it. And it was absolutely the right thing to do and it's no less beautiful, it's probably more so. And kind of green hues which match the rave, actually, the tone of the rave, which has that greeny-bluey hue to it. Our uh, colorist ensured that scenes where Callum is alone has that same tone. Again, these are the types of shots that I knew we needed but was never quite sure where they'd go. There wasn't a, a montage sequence like this written into the, um, into the script. 
there was a pool tournament actually which we shot I love that shot so much I think this montage might exist so that I could have that goat have its moment that just felt like the right transition it felt like the right movement where you have these shots of place other than the one that they're they're in as they jump off the platform you have these shots where again they feel like they could be now and the way that place doesn't evolve in the same way that people or relationships tends to endure. This was a moment, a scene where Paul did act to Frankie. It was a rare moment where when they had singles that were set at tables like this, that we made sure that he had the time and he really asked for that time. He made that happen to be able to perform this with Frankie in front of him, which I think is why there is such love and warmth in it. I have that Polaroid. Or we did a few takes, I think we all have one, but I think I have the one that's used in the film. That Baby G watch is also mine. I think it was given to me as a consolation when my brother was born. Did you have a good holiday then? The best. I wish we could have stayed for longer. Mm -hmm. Me too. So the scene ended there on the page and this dialogue that plays under it now was just the two of them. We talked about what it might be, but we did a couple of wide takes where, where we rolled and played a little. I really love this dialogue. I think when Frankie says we can't stay in hotels for the rest of our lives, I think about... Um, <laughs> the fact that she had been in one for two months at that point. You can have the wafer. Oh, thank you very much. The shot was actually inspired by um, a film called The Metamorphosis of Birds that I saw shortly before production. <laughs> that car comes a little bit close there. Last night, time for a dance. I don't dance. Sophie. I never... Paul would do this dance move to embarrass Frankie when they were out in Turkey, just away from set, when everybody was out in the evenings. <laughs> he knew that it would always get her. And that's Yenna that he passes there. That was Paul's stand-in. It was great. So this rave sequence, these sequences that you see here, these images were shot during a pickup in London that we did. Um, that we ended up not using for the vast majority of the rave, but which we did intercut at the end, and really some of the best footage here was from that pickup. Oh, Frankie's so good here. That's really the love between Paul and Frankie in that scene captured in that moment. You hear Oliver's score coming in here. We worked together to replace the temp music. It was really challenging to get this right and allow the music to meet and then diverge at the right moments. There really are five distinct sections across this queue. And you hear this room tone that Oliver recorded over and over again, this kind of whirring. That's the strong basis of the score here, one of the layers. This was pickup footage. 
It's so special what Celia did with the movement here. It was so moving the very first time they did it. I think it was the most moved I ever was on set. And then this is the original footage cut together. This, another thing we had just minutes to capture, and yet it's exactly what we needed. And we really worked to know the movement that, that we were in and the positions. There was a lot of planning. Actually, this is one of the few scenes that was storyboarded by Greg. And then here as the music starts to meet under pressure. I mean, we just missed it, but the moment that the Oliver's cello takes over from Freddie Mercury's vocal slide. And then the drums there, I think that is my favorite moment to hear in the cinema. Just the bass really amplifies the feeling. And then I love here the last image that you see of them both. You don't see their faces. And Celia's emerges above them. Okay. And now we're back at the airport. Bye -bye. The very first draft of the script ended in the rave, ended in that moment, and in discussing it, continue, continuing to develop the script, I actually came up with this while sitting with Michael Arndt at the Sundance Lab, and the idea was almost in place of the rave at that point, and I realized the rave was fundamentally what I was expressing by making this film in the first place and that it was utterly inextricable from the script but uh but this scene endured nonetheless and i really like the idea of changing the tone and allowing this last thing to be captured to be so goofy and loving and in fact that the original idea right. was that the film starts here the film starts just as she steps away and we see that wall hold and the camera drops down to the carpet and then the tape rewinds. But it just wasn't an introduction to character like our our opening is now. That establishes their uh, the warmth between them so much more quickly. And this was the last this was the last day on set in Istanbul, this New York apartment. There was a power cut in the whole area. I think it took us eight hours to, to shoot this first shot. Celia came from New York to Istanbul to pretend she was in New York. And this 360 degrees inspired by La Chambre, which is a Chantal Ackerman short from the 70s, shot in New York. And also by a short film by Greg called uh, Alice, where there's an amazing slider shot at the end that passes through the different doorways within an apartment building and sees a couple of different points in time. This airport corridor, we couldn't find anything that felt quite right, and so we shot it in the same tomato warehouse that we shot the Raven. And so it really was built in that same space. That's the strobe. Those are our extras. Blur Production Center really could create everything. And originally this shot panned all the way around um, and found 
Sophie in in the um, the apartment again, but ultimately that image was just too strong to to give up, and so that's where the film ended. And this cue here by Oliver, it's called One Without. Hopefully, the score will be released at some point. But um, after I first spoke with Oliver about the possibility of collaborating on this film the next day, I came into the edit room, and in my inbox was this, exactly as it plays right now. It's almost five minutes. He had. Um, gone into the studio immediately after our conversation and, and he'd written this. And it's really the only string piece of this sort in, in, in the score. I don't think we ever could have started with this music. But it was the perfect place to end. And I really liked how immediate its its composition was after after that conversation. There's just so something something so honest about that and responsive. And it's such a beautiful cue and I could listen to it for hours. And these are all uh, all of the people who made it happen. I hope this has been of interest. I'm sure I've omitted some of the uh, the better things uh, would do this entirely differently if, if given another opportunity but thanks for listening